0: I'm Monica. And I'm Emma. Welcome to Fanfare. Before we get into the show, can we make a brief detour into my closet? Always. Well, we've talked about this before, Emma, but fashion is like cooking. What? No. Well, yes. It all comes down to the ingredients.
1: Oh. Yeah.
0: When your essentials are solid, you don't have to own a zillion things. Nor should we aspire to, for obvious reasons.
1: You don't need to have both sweet and hot paprika? Is that
0: what you're trying to tell me? I don't think you do. And that's why I'm so excited that our sponsor for season three is Cezanne, a sustainable Parisian brand that nails the essentials and this at a surprisingly accessible price point, given their commitments to quality and to eco-friendly business practices.
1: Mm, They're a B Corp, aren't they?
0: They are. Visit S-E-Z-A-N-E dot com to see what I mean. Early one morning, the sun was shining. I was laying in bed, wondering if she'd changed at all, if her hair was
1: still red. Her folks, they set our lives together, sure was going to be rough. They never did like Mama's homemade dress. Papa's bank book wasn't big enough. And I was
0: standing on the side of the road, rain falling on my shoes.
1: Heading out for the East Coast, Lord knows I've paid some dues. Getting through.
0: Up in blue. Welcome to season three of Fanfare, in which cultural luminaries invite their dream guests to dinner.
1: Joining us from Paris shortly, we will have Oliver G, creator of the award-winning podcast, The Earful Tower.
0: An Aussie by birth, Oliver first came to Paris as a full-time journalist in 2015. The Earful Tower, launched in 2017, is one of the most downloaded travel podcasts out there, and
1: the ultimate listen for Francophiles everywhere. And wouldn't you believe it, Mon, he's bringing our old friend Bob to dinner.
0: Emma, I'm almost a bit nervous about this episode because I knew there would be a Bob one eventually. In fact, I'm surprised there hasn't been one up until now. But maybe it's because Bob is so very prolific and has affected so many of us in so many ways that it's too hard to sum up his influence on popular culture, but also to speak for myself on my interior life, the way I think about things and the way I listen, really the way I listen to music. I, I, I,
1: I love Bob. Mm, I know this about you. And certainly the way you dramatically read music aloud, too. (laughs) Um, Reading lyrics aloud, by the way, is a device we borrowed from the excellent podcast, Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan, hosted by Carrie Shale and Lucas Hare. We will link to it in the show notes. In light of Dylan's well-documented habit of borrowing bits he liked from those he admired, we hope they won't mind. Despite how important Bob Dylan's music has been to me as well from adolescence onward, uh, Mon, you may remember in our high school yearbook, the little blurb under my photo says at the end, I love you, Bob Dylan. Yes! That was my sign-off. But until now, I have resisted looking him up or knowing too much about him or his life. Really? Yes. Thank you, Oliver. I mean, obviously... I knew he was originally called Robert Zimmerman and that he had gone electric and been booed and that he'd had a motorcycle accident and been born again. And I read Chronicles in high school, um, but obviously I took it with the requisite gallon of salt because we all know it's a self-mythologizing type of account um, and that a lot that he wrote in there wouldn't exactly hold up to a New Yorker style fact check, let's say. But now that I'm properly reading biographies and dipping a toe into the sort of intense world of these so-called Dylanologists, it seems as if, and I don't know, I mean, we'll get into this with Oliver, but it seems to me that he didn't want to be known. You know, don't you think it's, is it fair to say that he was kind of as Elena Ferrante as you can get while, and I mean that in the, you know, pseudonymous way, not in the feminist writer way, but um, without, while, while still having to appear in body on stage as a performing artist.
0: So yes, I do think so. And I like that Elena Ferrante reference uh, for that kind of vibe that he has had for most of his career. But I would argue that that actually developed like in the latter half of the 1960s. And I would argue that when he first appeared on the scene in Greenwich Village, however the hell he got there, because there's lots of different accounts. um, I think at the very beginning, he wanted his music to be out there um i think he did kind of want to be known because that's the way that he was going to touch people
1: with his music oh sorry i don't mean that he didn't want his music to be known or for his presence to be known it's that he didn't want his true self to be known like he showed up telling people that he had you know come from foster homes when in fact he had loving parents he said he was from new mexico he said he had joined a circus he said he had run away from home 17 times you know he was He was from these, like, doting, loving parents who, you know, and he was in a frat. Like, (laughs) he
0: was... (laughs) True. But he did, I would argue that at the very beginning, he was wide-eyed and he did want to be famous, for lack of a better word. And I think, famous for his music, of course, and I agree with that. But I think that what happened to him is actually not that far from what happens to a lot of quote-unquote celebrities, which is that he's he felt the dark side of fame and he felt it really quickly. And there's a few accounts of, you know, when he first started having children, got married at the height of his fame, it, 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 of his sixties fame and started trying to back away from it. But, and, and, and anyway, he doesn't always do the Ferrante thing. Like when he won the Nobel prize for literature, uh, which was hotly debated, obviously as to whether he should have, I feel he absolutely should. Um, and asked, Patty Smith to accept on his behalf, and the American ambassador to Sweden also read out an acceptance speech for Bob, which I actually find remarkably earnest when you really listen to it. Um, He's obviously deeply mysterious and avoidant normally, but ironically, or perhaps because he wasn't actually reading it out himself and he knew he wouldn't be, it does come across that he was sort of truly humbled by it and... I think it provides some real insight. I, let's see what you think. I want to read out a couple excerpts.
1: Please. I'm wearing my thinking hat. So this is
0: this is the ambassador reading it on on his behalf. And she almost seems quite moved to be doing so. So he says, I was on the road when I first received the surprising news, and it took me more than a few minutes to properly process it. I began to think about William Shakespeare, the great literary figure. I would reckon he thought of himself as a dramatist. The thought that he was writing literature couldn't have entered his head. His words were written for the stage, meant to be spoken, not read. When he was writing Hamlet, I'm sure he was thinking about a lot of different things. Who are the right actors for these roles? How should this be staged? Do I really want to set this in Denmark? And then he goes on and talks about the experience of playing to a lot of people, whereas playing to few people is actually scarier and how few people are actually on the Nobel committee, which he acknowledges. And he says at the end, but like Shakespeare, I too am often occupied with the, okay, he is comparing himself to Shakespeare, but let's get over that. But like, like Shakespeare, I too am often occupied with the pursuit of my creative endeavors and dealing with all aspects of life's mundane matters. Who are the best musicians for these songs? Am I recording in the right studio? Is this song in the right key? Some things never change, even in 400 years. Not once have I ever had the time to ask myself, are my songs literature? So I do thank the Swedish Academy for both taking the time to consider that very question and ultimately for providing such a wonderful answer. My best wishes to you all, Bob Dylan.
1: I I, I actually find that quite humble. I mean, Bob Dylan thanking anyone. Bob Dylan thanking anyone at any point is humble, right? Like that's, you know, Leonard Cohen who gets down on one knee uh, on the eve of his 70th birthday to thank or 80th, I think, to thank, you know, this the Spanish guitar player who's performing with him and who's, you know, whose humility had no bounds later and was just extremely gracious in every way. Like Bob Dylan in that podcast, are you rolling, Bob? They do a really funny imitation of the like, oh He has like an almost thank you that he sometimes uses in concerts that kind of sounds like, oh, if you're like really listening (sighs) carefully, he maybe is thanking the audience for coming out. (laughs) Um, But no, so it's like not really his style to be the grateful. He doesn't have, I don't think he keeps a gratitude journal. And if he does, certainly it's not something that he's like, you know, reading aloud to his fans. And that's part of his persona. Uh, And so you're right, like notwithstanding a minor likening of himself to shakespeare totally he's he's talking about the fact that he didn't set out to write literature and now he's being given this
0: the highest award for literature and he i actually think he was quite blown away by it but he didn't he didn't then he didn't show up and did get patty smith and the ambassador to accept on his behalf so and patty smith was really nervous eh like she's a brilliant performer and um I love, I love that. Her Smith. performance of Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. At one point, she fumbles. I'm sure most people have seen it. You can find it on YouTube really easily. Um, and she does a lovely, a really great performance. But at one point, she must know that song back to front. But she sort of stumbles.
1: Imagine the pressure. That would be a lot of pressure. That would be a lot of pressure. Yeah. I mean, Okay. Question for you before Oliver comes, had you heard the word Dylanologist before you started researching for this episode?
0: Um, I feel like I had sort of followed David Remnick's obsessions and then letdowns and disappointments. And I feel like it had come up once or twice there. And I remember thinking, you know, several years ago when I was reading that um, in the New Yorker, like, wow, there are actual Dylanologists. It's true that there are people who devote their entire academic careers to studying, to trying to demystify the Bob, which could probably be quite frustrating, I would say.
1: One thing I love, in we mentioned Rolling Thunder. We talked about that, the documentary that Scorsese did on the Rolling Thunder review. I think one of the lines that I liked most in that doc was, Bob Dylan is asked to talk about the Rolling Thunder review. And his answer is, uh, that was such a long time ago. I, I don't even—I wasn't even born when that happened. I wasn't yeah. even born. <laughs> you know, I think like yeah. the the current version of himself wasn't even born, and there's some truth to that. He doesn't believe that he's not like a—he doesn't believe that he's infinitely knowable to himself. So, like, how are all the ologists going to know him?
0: Absolutely, but he lo- also loves um, muddling around time frames, which drives the Dylanologists mad. But it all—that reminds me of my back pages where he says, he tells this whole tale of woe and then he says, but I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. (laughs) What does that mean? Uh, You know? But okay, I love it, let's Let's go go with it. it. Um, Well, I'll tell you who else is willing to go with it is former President Barack Obama, who in 2012 presented Bob with the Presidential Medal of Freedom at the White House, which is the highest possible civilian award. This Bob did actually uh, turn up to. And so with Bob sitting in front of him and, and the other recipients of the award, and I believe Toni Morrison was in the same heat as Bob Dylan. So Obama is giving him this award, and you can just see how happy he is. He starts in, Bob Dylan started out singing some other people's songs. But as he says, there comes a point where I had to write what I wanted to say, because what I wanted to say, nobody else was writing.
1: So born in Hibbing, Minnesota, a a town, he says, where you couldn't be a rebel, it was too cold. (laughs) Bob moved to New York at age 19. By the time he was 23, Bob's voice, with its weight, its, its unique gravelly power, was redefining not just what music sounded like, but the message it carried and how it made people feel. Today, everybody from Bruce Springsteen to YouTube owes Bob a debt of gratitude. There is not a, a bigger giant in the history of American music. All these years later, he's still chasing that sound. Uh, Still searching for a little bit of truth. And
2: uh, I have to say that I am a really big fan.
0: (laughs) So, Obama also, at another point, described the moment he met Dylan at the White House for a performance. And he recalls, finishing the song, he steps off the stage. I'm sitting in the front row. He comes up, shakes my hand, sort of tips his head, gives me just a little grin, and then leaves. And that was it. Then he left. That was our only interaction with him. And I thought, that's how you want Bob Dylan, right? You don't want him to be all cheesing and grinning with you. You want him to be a little skeptical about the whole enterprise. So that was a real treat. And I love this because I would argue that listening to Dylan in my early teenage years is what taught me to be a little skeptical about the whole enterprise. Do
1: you know what I mean, Emma? Yes, yes. Well said, Mon. Me too. And that skepticism... Well, I mean, we both went to journalism school to perfect our, you know, skeptical lens on reality. And I think it's interesting because maybe maybe that's part of the reason why he's telling us all these whoppers is to make us more skeptical of his own account and every other account. Who knows? But for me, I, I can't help but tell you that that skepticism includes, for me, a certain amount of skepticism toward Bob himself, because the whole mystery Bob machine does at times feel, you know, a little bit self-serving but if you're going to have to serve somebody you might as well serve yourself right and um and I do have to tip this hat to him for not slobbering all over Obama because I definitely would have, and I cannot imagine the willpower that it would take to play it cool with Obama. It must have been yeah. really hard because, yeah, and apparently
0: Dylan was a big uh, supporter of Obama and thrilled that he got elected, so he like had to keep his no, I admire his ability to
1: keep his cool, and I really admire his apparent ability not to really care what people, you know, as a recovering people pleaser myself, I think the fact that he doesn't try and please people is pretty cool. And I love that. I love that about him.
0: Well, let, let's let see what Oliver thinks about all this. Should we let him in? Oliver, welcome. It's great to see you again.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us. We're very excited to hear your thoughts on the towering figure that is Mr. Bob Dylan.
2: I'm, I'm I'm super excited to see you two dressed up.
0: Yeah, do you love our accessories? Oh no, we're, <laughs> we wear this every day.
1: No, no, this is <laughs>
0: um, no. But I'll take my sunnies off to say this. My wayfarers. It is hard to think of a musician, or I guess even a person that's meant so much to so many, while largely remaining a bit of an enigma. Why, for you, is Bob Dylan the person that you would most like to have dinner with?
2: I think. You said it yourself, the fact that he's such an enigma, just it, it, I'm mystified by, it. I feel like with a lot of the other people that I sort of, who are in my world, people who I look at or watch or listen to, or whatever, there's, there's no one that's even close to Bob Dylan in just being this complete puzzle I, I don't get it. Like I have no idea. I'm like, he's such a puzzle to me that I can't even begin to figure it out, and that really fascinates me. And I've thought a lot about it, not just him as a person. I'm sure we'll get into some of these things, but also his music. Uh, you know, it's pretty much every part about him mystifies me, and I think it be uh, it could be a real it, it could be there could be negatives in sitting down and having dinner with a man like Bob Dylan, but I like to imagine. Uh, that we're going to get him on a really good day and he's going to be really happy to talk and reveal some of his secrets. Uh, So yeah, and he's been a big part of my life for a long time, a musician unparalleled by the others.
1: When did you first come to his work? And is there a track that really speaks to you above all others?
2: I think, I think, uh, I mean, I surely had heard his music before when I was younger, but I remember reading some article when I was maybe 15 or 16 that uh, said that his, I think it was, people said that Like a Rolling Stone was the best song ever in the history of the world. And I was like, what? I never even heard of this one. Let's give it a listen. And I remember like super clearly, I think a lot of people have the Bob Dylan sort of origin story. I remember I went to a local library in Perth, Australia, where I used to live, a library to get a CD. Uh, and then I put it on and I went to that track and I listened to it. And I remember being so confused and thinking, what the heck? What was that? What was that? I didn't even know what that was. I definitely didn't like it. But um, immediately, like, maybe I walked out of the room or something. And immediately I was like, I need to hear that again. What was going on? There? I, really, I, really, I wasn't ready for it. And then when I uh, listened to it again, and sort of figured out it wasn't like all the other songs, uh, it it opened up a fascination for me that I have continued to go down. And I think it's because of Bob Dylan, No, certainly because of Bob Dylan, that it changed the way I even like music, like the way I like music in that I I need music to have uh, lyrics that are good. If a song doesn't have good lyrics, I can't. I can't listen to it. And I assume that that's largely uh, because of Bob Dylan. And you ask my favorite song. I give you an answer that that's tough. But I think for a song that everyone knows that I really like would be like, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. And a song that most people probably don't know, but I really love. Is Changing of the Guards, which is one of those long...
0: Oh, I love that okay, one. Cool, I love good. that one. And it's not very well known. 16 years,
2: 16 years, 16,
0: I spent one summer when I was 17... Um, traveling in Europe, and I listened to that song endlessly. I remember it was the days, it must have been the days of CDs, you know, so you kept kept listening to the same thing. I actually miss those days because you really got into certain songs and and albums in a different way. But um, I remember just trying to understand all of the, like, little facets of the story that he's telling. I mean, how do you interpret that song?
2: Well, I mean... I'm like I'm I'm aware that you guys probably have a direction you want this interview to go, but at the same time, I feel mm-hmm. like we could go down a million different sort of rabbit There's holes. There's so
0: many. We'll reel it in in a okay, second. Okay.
2: Well, just specifically on that song, I I I think in terms of what it means, and I struggle with this even with this song. I think there are a lot of people who really like chip away to try and find what it means and what Bob Dylan must have meant when he wrote it. And there are essays, like there's Dylanologists, people who go so deep into this yeah, stuff. Yeah, we
0: were just talking about that in the intro. Right, it's
2: like, like way, way deep. And, uh, and I don't really even care what it means. I still like it. And I can, I can liken that to going into an art museum and you can go in and appreciate any kind of painting that speaks to you on some level. It doesn't mean you don't necessarily need to go in there and be like well, what does that mean? What did the artist mean? Because I need to figure it out. And I think with this changing of the gods, uh, uh, I don't know what it means. I know that there's a lot of religious...
0: Yeah, because that's in his born-again era, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. So there's they, they go. It, that song goes really deep into it. And I've read things online in the past and been like, yeah, that all makes sense. But I also kind of don't even know if Bob Dylan uh, intended it to be that deep. The way that people hang on to every single word this guy says and everything he's written to the degree... Like I've read some things where people go... Um, it's very odd that he chose to write, uh, he, he, it would make much more sense if he said she in this, in this verse. And I'm like, wow, you you're like trying to figure what he even meant to write there. And I don't feel like I'm on that level of, uh, deconstructing the songs, but like I could listen to that, uh, particular song or, or many like that and just uh, appreciate the unusual, the unusual style of it. And, and I love that idea what could that mean? like a conversation that could go on forever
0: and maybe it's meant to mean different things to different people
2: that's what they say isn't it that's what a lot of musicians and filmmakers and stuff say they say they make it and they put it out there and then it's for you to figure out what it means to you and you know there's i've heard stories about like people going up to um i had a story someone went up to bono from u2 and they said oh we played the song one at my wedding and he's like he says to himself that's a breakup song and you play but you know if that's what it means to you that's great and maybe Maybe, just maybe, that's what Bob wants us to do, find our own meanings. Maybe he doesn't know the meaning himself. Maybe he's just putting a whole bunch of things in there and uh, and see what happens. But I, I enjoy it no matter.
1: Mm, yes, Oliver, to that somebody, Bob Dylan has said about the whole album, Blood on the Tracks, which is a breakup album in terms of when it was written, um, the summer of or 1974, after his breakup um, with his wife, Sarah. And He said, a lot of people tell me they enjoy that album. It's hard for me to relate to that. I mean, you know, people enjoying that type of pain, you know, that's what he said. (laughs) But when somebody can articulate pain in the way that Bob Dylan can and tap into, can express the unexpressible, that I think that's a huge part of why he becomes part of the collective consciousness. Like his ability to give us that pain on vinyl and then bring it into your bedroom when you need it. And then you listen to it enough and it stops being pain. Maybe it starts being you at 16 or a specific person you associate it with. Or
2: And that's the whole thing as well. People talk about, talk about it an awful lot is when you go back and listen to things at different stages of your life, like uh, I'm not 16 anymore, so I could go back and or read books or whatever, but you can go back and listen to it. It means a whole different thing depending on where you are in your life sometimes like a breakup song can mean something, t- well, like, you know, just like I said with that U2 song, it can mean the exact opposite depending where you are. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a nice thing to think. You keep listening to it and enjoying it in different ways.
0: But what I love for, is for me personally, anyway, when I go back and listen to some of these songs that I came to as a teenager and love so much, they may mean something different because of life experience. In fact, they usually do, but they mean as much Whereas there's other music that I listen to all the time as a teenager, like, I don't know, Ace of Bass. And I have, I mean, this is so mean to Ace of Bass, but it doesn't really affect me on the same level these days, except for from the
1: point of view of nostalgia. Right. It's a time machine, but it's not deeper than that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We have been talking about his famous habit of kind of self-mythologizing. And from your perspective... Is he masked and anonymous? Is he joking? Is he lying? Where is the line, and what's what is it all about?
2: I, good question and well phrased too. I appreciated it. It's um I don't think I don't even think he knows the answer to that. I think um, I tell you, I was in a bookshop in Paris the other day and I saw a copy of Romeo and Juliet and I was like, this is coming back to Bob Dylan. But I was like, I was intrigued by you know we all studied Shakespeare at school and I was like, does it read, like, can you really just read it if you flip open to a page or do you have no idea what's going on? And I opened to a random page and by total chance, the line that I looked at was, it just said, I think it was Mercutio or someone He said time out of mind, which is the name of, I think it's the name of Bob Dylan album. Right. And, and it made me think like, I know I've read about Bob Dylan a lot before and I know that he is a voracious reader and he, um, He's read everything in, in from all over the world. And I wondered, I was like, I wonder how much of it is him reading everything, getting deep into it, and thinking of the themes of songs and putting himself in there or putting other characters in there, or how much of it is really just being like, time out of mind. Nice phrase. I'll insert that. <laughs> in album, uh, Like in terms of, you know, like all these ideas and the mythology, like he apparently he refers to himself as Napoleon in rags and um, like a Rolling Stone. Like... The I don't know I I
0: go to him now he calls you you can't refuse
2: what does it all mean Tambourine man let's get like where do we even begin but um I don't know I I think I think with uh with all with all this including meeting Bob Dylan I think the enigma is going to be bigger than getting to any real answers and for me that's the the beauty of it having no idea and going along for the swirling uh, the swirling ride down uh, someone can quote it for me the. To dance beneath the diamond si- uh, skies with one hand re- waving free, silhouetted by the sea—that's what I want to be doing uh, at this dinner and just uh,
0: yeah, exactly. It. So I think we should go for that. I mean, in Scorsese's 2019 film *Rolling Thunder You, a Bob Dylan story, which like explores Dylan's 1975 tour of small U.S. venues, Dylan says, "When somebody's wearing a mask, he's gonna tell you the truth." When he's not wearing a mask, it's highly unlikely. So I just feel like maybe we shouldn't even attempt to unmask the Bob.
2: Mm, there's another quote, I don't have it, I, but I've read it before, where he says that it's something along those lines where it's like he doesn't even know that it's him that he's talking about. Like, I don't, I, I've got a suspicion Bob Dylan doesn't know what, what's going on either.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to find this particular passage in the uh, Clinton Halen, the most recent. Clinton halen book about bob dylan and if you open it up to the beginning it's like also by Clinton halen on bob dylan and there are like 65 titles so it's like okay wow well
2: that's the thing these these dylanologists they go so d- i was listening to this this there's podcast about bob dylan where they get so deep into it, and i was listening to like i like bob dylan like definitely more than the next person right but these people who are discussing there's one i was listening to where they were discussing um that that you could see a, a tan line from where his ring had been removed because he'd been recently divorced. And I was like, wow, you're really getting into the depths wow. of this thing and what they mean. It's
1: forensic, forensic. And it's mean. I mean, then you can appreciate why exactly. he's hiding, right? Like who wouldn't hide from that true. kind of game? Yeah, dance. true, true. But but one thing that in this one passage in this that I loved, it was a young Bob Dylan rushing into one of the folk coffee houses to tell his friends, like, I've just written a great song. And then he thinks about it and goes, or at least I think I wrote it. Which, you know, I love that. Like, yeah. they were all playing each other's music all the time. If a phrase came into his head, to your point about Shakespeare, like, he may not have been 100% sure whether it was his line or Shakespeare's, you know, whether it was Ramlin Jack, Elliott yeah. he was borrowing from. Exactly, or, which is know,
0: part of the folk tradition lar- more
1: largely. But no, it, I mean, he was a great reader and would, I think, the word appropriation was not in his book. It wasn't about appropriation. It was about pulling together influences that felt true to him in his way right and and weaving them together
2: well it's funny even even um Romeo and Juliet was already written before Shakespeare had a go at it you know it's a story already that uh, I don't remember the exact details but this isn't you know everything is all that's a that's a um everything is always already written but also there's one of those documentaries where John Byers just said that She said Bob Dylan would write a song and then she imitates him. It's quite funny. I don't remember which documentary it is, but she goes, he he read it to her and then goes like, Oh, wow. I wonder what they're going to make of this. As if to be like, you know, does it, (laughs) does it have a definite meaning? I don't know.
0: Emma, true or false? One of the best things about parties, including imaginary ones, is playing dress-up. True, true. True or false, our current clothing habits are one of the biggest contributors to climate change.
1: Miserably true also.
0: Which brings me back to our Season 3 sponsor, Sizen. Not only are their clothes so timelessly chic that you'll want to wear them over and over for decades, possibly centuries to come, but they are made well, both from a quality and from an environmental
1: standpoint. Cezanne is a certified B Corp that sources organic textiles, ships in boxes that are either 100% recycled or sourced from sustainably managed forests, powers all of its stores with renewable energy, and has managed to reduce the carbon footprint of one garment by 17.2% over the last year. Plus, the clothes are dreamy for a Tuesday morning or for dinner with your dream guest. Visit Cezanne.com to start browsing.
2: If we're really sitting down with Bob Dylan, 82-year-old Bob Dylan for dinner, and uh, I think the worst thing we could do is admit any kind of being fans, I think it's the worst thing we could possibly do because imagine yeah, – you're probably right about Like, that. I mean, <laughs> looking at photos of him from since the 60s with people swarming around him just adoring him. And like we said, these Dylanologists, he doesn't care. He doesn't want to hear that. Yeah. Exactly, don't comment on his pant lines either. (laughs) There's a a Neil Young lyric where he says, it doesn't mean that much to me to mean that much to you. And I think that, you know, it reminds me when I was about, I don't know, 20, there were some comedians that were on TV that I really liked in Australia and I met them. And it was the first time I'd met sort of famous people to me anyway. And I said to them, I was like, oh, you know, like I went out to get an autograph or something at the end. And I said, you know, we quote you guys all the time. It's so great. Like we love you. We quote you. And he, one of them turns back to me and he goes, you know what? We quote you too. Like it's really weird. I found it like a really, I guess he's trying to be funny, but he, he, it was really off-putting. And I realized straight away that I'd sort of done this mistake. Like if you're going to have a conversation with anybody and you know, I work as a podcast, the is what I hopefully I'm good at. Um, Coming up to someone and admitting that you're a fan of them doesn't put you on the, firstly, it puts you on way different levels. But secondly, it's not putting anything in common. Because if you say, I love your work, Bob Dylan, um, he's not going to go, I love my work too. We've got something in common. He's going to straight away be like, oh, you know, it doesn't mean that much to me to, be, to mean that much to you.
1: Maybe we don't even reference the fact that he's Curve Bob balls. Dylan and just ask yeah. him how his day was and be very present tense about it all.
0: And we're going to like try and I think we'd all probably like to look nice and would like to cook him something good and make him feel at home. So Emma and I had some ideas about that. But Oliver, like, what are you going to wear?
2: Morals for spring. Groundbreaking. Well, fashion. This is definitely more your, uh, your world than mine. But um, we know that Bob Dylan is an icon. Of fashion. So what do you wear? This is your world really, Monica. What do you wear when you're sitting down for dinner with an icon who's spanned the genres of fashion, elegant, effortlessly, I don't care, cool for decades?
0: Well, yeah, I would argue he's had almost as much of an influence on fashion as he has on music. And I really mean that. I mean, just look at, uh, for example, look at the recent Celine by Hedi Slimane campaign. He was in the Celine campaign like a few weeks ago and that guy is meticulous. And it's interesting also because the Celine sort of aesthetic since Hedy Slimane took over has very much been this sort of pared down, Parisian, layered up, messy hair look on it should be said sometimes slightly problem- problematically skinny people, but anyway, that is very much bobs kind of 60s look he was very sort of slim and had all these layers on and that that is almost like the cliched parisian look as well you know that whole in the past 15 20 years paris vogue emmanuel alt look with the stripy shirt i'm wearing one of the stripy shirts now and the leather or pea coat, and the a specific cut kind of jeans with kind of Western style boots. Uh, it's very sleman for Celine, but it's very kind of Paris in general. And he he so he's he's had a real influence on that. I don't know if we're having our dinner party in Paris or not, but um, we
2: need to figure that out. This is important too. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah,
0: and and it'll it'll be actually because I wanted to come back to you were mentioning that there was a strong connection between Paris and Bob. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that?
2: Well, I mean, he's... Firstly, he, he's toured here an awful lot in France, uh, including uh, he's coming in this summer, July, and he's got a few dates. I got tickets, and I was like... He, as far as I was aware, he's not coming to Paris, or it hasn't been released yet if he's coming to Paris. But um, get this. So the places that were uh, that, that he's going to be going included Carcassonne, which I don't know if you guys have been to Carcassonne. Okay.
0: I have, so yeah, it's in the, the amphitheater the castle. in
2: the old town, which I was like <gasps> Yeah, I was like Stop. I was like, I'm going there just for I'm gonna do it. But then the Yeah yeah, yeah right? Pilgrim the Bridge. only seats though were like very back row and I was like, Carcassonne's kinda hard to get to. Where else is he playing? And it was like it was either Aix-en-Provence or Avignon, which I was also like, yeah, that's, I'll go just for that city, but also in Lyon, where he's doing two shows. And I was like, you know what? Oh, yeah, two-hour train, train, and I don't want to jinx anything, but the man is 82, and I don't know how many more concerts he's got. So I yeah, got uh, decent tickets, and I'm, I'm super pumped about it. But he's been coming to Paris since the 60s, and I've been reading about this. He, he When he first got here, before he'd broken through, definitely at least before he'd broken through in, in Europe, He'd come here and he'd meet up uh, with other singers who sang his songs in French eventually. And he'd go on these journeys looking, sort of following the footsteps of the great authors and poets who he's referenced in loads of his songs, even his recent songs. But he'd uh, he'd be looking to get down into the sewers to follow where Jean Valjean went in Les Miserables, for example, these kind of things. Um, so he's got this and this strong connection there's lyrics about um there's a really good song you're gonna make me lonesome when you go and in it i didn't prepare this so i might get it wrong but there's a there's um a lyric that goes something like S- uh situations have ended sad relationships have all been bad mine have been like verlaine's and Rambo and i'm like getting back to when i was 16 or 17 i started listening to his music and i hear a line like that and i just be like where did that come from if you can if you compare that to any other song—not any, but the majority of anything you hear on the radio—everything seems empty when you hear something like that. Situations have ended, sad relationships have all been bad. Mine have been like lanes and Rambo, but there's no way I can compare all them scenes to this affair. You're gonna make me lonesome when you go.
0: So many of his album covers or various times he's been photographed have just become complete fashion references. And the early one is the cover of the Wheelin'." in that photo where he's walking through the snow with Suze Rotolo. I'm sure everyone can picture it. And that in and of itself is just a great stylistic classic. Those old beaten up blue jeans, the like cowboy style boots, the vintage belt, everything, you know, the the suede. I think he's wearing a suede jacket. I have this suede jacket from Cezanne that I tried today, on today over top of my layered look for um, for for you both. Uh, but I, I actually really was thinking about how inspired I have been by Bob style as a woman, you know, um, over my many decade love affair with this enigmatic man who I don't know. But also, I came across... So this would have been in France. Why, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was in Paris. He played... Um, in the late 60s, uh at the same venue as Francoise Aldi, who is such a a musical icon and style icon in her own right. You know, that again, that French beauty that we all imagine with the mini skirt and the brown hair and bangs. Um, there are some really like cozy photos of the two of them sharing a chat and a cigarette where they're like almost looks like they're about to wrap their legs around each other, and you sort of think, did he have a First of all, it's just a great photo to look at for fashion inspiration. There's a couple of them, but I also just wonder if he really slept with all of these iconic women that he is supposed that the dildologists would try and analyze whether he did.
2: Yeah, apparently I read about this. Apparently, he had seen like a photo of her when he was in New York and just fell in love with her. Started writing her love letters that he never he? sent. Oh but the, oh, right? The, uh, the, whoever was running the bar kept I the letters, that. which were like for Francois Hardy, and then she oh. received them way later and oh. uh, way no. too late, I imagine. Close keys. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. Know, but maybe that was, so maybe that one was more going on in his imagination.
2: Perhaps, perhaps, maybe. I,
0: I don't know. This whole idea of Bob Dylan the lover, the like serial romancer, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll find out.
1: Well, because he does refer to love so much in his songs, but he's nowhere near as kind of like sensual as Leonard right. Cohen, right? Like it almost yeah. yeah. Mm. No, there's a deta- the sense of detachment at least from my perspective. Compare if you can, com- and you shouldn't. I'm sure he would not want us to compare him to Leonard Cohen. It's no, we'll no. We'll be doing this
0: when he arrives. For shame!
2: I know you guys did a great episode on Leonard Cohen already, but I feel like the two of them are right up there for me. I feel like Leonard Cohen would be a a nicer dinner like conversation, I feel like he's way- Well, you know, he's the well, Canadian. I feel like <laughs> if I had to get stuck and live with one of them and I wanted to ensure a polite and fun time, I think I'd go with uh, with Leonard Cohen. But the risk uh, is something I want to take. Bob Dylan, where could they go? Who knows? What do you guys think I should wear?
0: I think Oliver should go for like, he's wearing a pretty cool black t-shirt. I think he should wear that with some black jeans, like maybe some nice boots and a belt and like a black jacket or a gray jacket or like a leather jacket, just something that kind of nods to Bob's impeccable style, but without, none of us want to look like we're freakishly imitating him. First and foremost, saying that right. to myself. You can't
1: wear the corduroy no. cap. No. The like early days no. corduroy cap would be too and then, much. Too
0: Emma, much. I'm feeling like maybe you could go for a kind of François Aldi style. You always look great in a suede miniskirt and boots. <laughs>
2: There's, um, there's a there's a there's okay. yeah. a there's a Bob Dylan lyric from a really another great song called Sarah, and he refers to his ex-wife as a Scorpio Sphinx in a calico dress. What that means, I don't know, but that could help you pick your outfit.
1: Yes, there's something sweet about a calico dress. It's yeah, that's interesting. I love it. I think it's yeah. Okay, that sounds really good. Should we talk about menu?
2: Bon appetit.
0: Yeah, I just, I just want to say one thing. He does notice fashion. You're right. He does bring it into her songs, you know, just like a woman with her fog, her amphetamines and her pearls. Or lately, we I've seen her ribbons and her bows. Yeah. Like he does. What about the leopard skin pillbox hat? And the leopard skin pillbox hat. Oh, someone's got to wear that.
1: He's an aesthetic creature. <laughs> he is.
0: Yes. But is he a um, food lover? Is he a foodie?
1: OK, so I asked I asked chat GPT <laughs> oh. <laughs> what I should cook for Bob Dylan, and it was actually quite helpful. It said, Bob Dylan is known to be a private person, and his personal food preferences are not widely documented. <laughs> yeah. however, however, there are a few references to his food preferences in interviews and books about him. According to an interview with Dylan's former personal chef, Annie Waite, published in The Guardian, Dylan is a health-conscious eater who prefers organic, locally-sourced ingredients. Waite also mentioned that Dylan is a vegetarian. See, this is important, but occasionally eats fish. In another interview with The New York Times, Dylan revealed that he enjoys Mexican food, specifically tacos and burritos. I do have quite a good recipe for these roasted cauliflower tacos with a cashew crema. I really like making them, so I feel confident that I could do it well for Bob, because I think I'll be a little jittery on game day. And you roast the cauliflower with lots of nice spices, like some cumin and some paprika until they're golden and toasty. And then you serve them. I like to do it on soft-shelled tacos. I prefer flour with this really good sauce that's made of cashew butter whisked up with garlic and lime juice. And then I could make a really good homemade guac. And then serve them with jalapenos and sliced red cabbage. Yum. What do you think of something like that? I mean, it's not, I feel like if I I don't want to go too like over the top pretentious because he. I feel like it's all about good ingredients, and making sure that it's plentiful but chill and like relaxed and not. I don't want to start getting all fussy and vertical, and tweezery with Bob Dylan's plate. Do you agree?
2: I think it sounds. I think it sounds delicious. I'm so in on that dinner that I don't mind if Bob Dylan doesn't show up. Suddenly. <laughs>
1: And in terms of drinks, drinks are also obviously an important consideration based on what his chef says. I bet he would like a bit of green juice. And as we all know, I can provide that. But I also have, um, and yeah, it's like organic and locally sourced for sure, Bob, we got you. But I also am thinking maybe some gin because when I was reading, yeah, he's not teetotal, is he? I don't know. I don't think he I, is. didn't
2: he. I think he had a did he have a whiskey brand or something? At yeah, some point? yeah, right. he did. He did. And if he's hanging around in southern France, he's gonna like wine. I think. Yes, he,
1: and in Chronicles, which is obviously not that up to date, but in Chronicles, he did say that he likes red wine, whiskey, beer, and tequila. So we should have all of that on hand plus the green juice and you know some seltzer and non-alcoholic beer just in case. But I was thinking that gin might bring him back to a specific memory because when he, in his very early New York days, got his first paying gig, and it was really early in his New York period, everyone was like, oh my gosh, he's already he was on a ticket with John Lee Hooker, who was one of his influences, and it was a really big deal. Um, and John Lee Hooker later said that after their gigs, because it was a four-week run, after their gigs, they would sit around talking and drinking gin together.
2: Isn't that a great idea? Wouldn't it be cool if you could find some gin that was really popular in the 1960s in New York, but maybe isn't popular anymore, and you just sort of serve it up with the bottle showing out so he knows what it is, and like in the end of Ratatouille, he just sips that gin and just goes, like, well... (laughs) I we <laughs> talk like well
1: we haven't asked him imagine we haven't asked him a single question about himself we haven't no. even alluded to the fact no, that no, he's no, world no, no. famous nobody is we're all staying super tr- super cool and mum's the word about yes. every single thing and then we yes. just very subtly yes. throw some John Lee Hooker on the turntable yes.
2: and pour him yes. <laughs> this we- pristine
1: <laughs> Madeleine yes. gin and he just- No, I
2: think what we do is we talk about France. <laughs> we talk us. about France, but in a really, because we, we, we assume that he quite likes France and we have him sort of interested, but he's probably being a bit, you know, sitting back. He doesn't, he doesn't really care. We're not talking about his music. Maybe we subtly throw in some song lyrics of his, but really weird ones, so he doesn't even know what's happening. Then he sips that gin and just goes, guys, I'm going to open up and tell you all about my brilliant career and then it begins
1: well oh i love that and he, or he just picks up a guitar maybe he just picks up a guitar because we put his favorite yeah i, I don't know I don't I keep next <laughs> to him. and he just starts to strum <laughs> wait 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 wait. he tells us but in wait, song guys, oliver
0: you're not getting off that lightly i happen to know that you are a very good interviewer
2: thanks you. for the compliment i think uh, <laughs> i think honestly i wouldn't i'd still avoid his career i would just say something like um something really simple like why why do you like France or tell me about France yeah Yeah, you're right I just and I'd let him just go for it and then I'd uh if he was really seemed warmed up to it because also like what we talked about before that's putting me and and Bob or Zimmy on common ground we can talk about something we both like we talk about France and then see where it goes and same with like whenever I interview anyone as you know Monica I don't have a set of scripted questions i just try and see where it goes and see what keeps people brave, um, brave brave see where the conversation goes so i'd like to start like that and then and then uh if it went really well i'd be super fascinated to talk about the meaning in the songs but in a way that's not like i could never go who is the this you know who does shakespeare and you know because there's lyrics like shakespeare is in the alley what do you mean but i would never do it like that but I'd be i I'd be so curious to to hear how much it's it is sort of flicking through books and picking bits that go well together and how much it really is um, you know, all intended to be this big deep mystery to be solved or unsolved.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. I I'll agree. just give him some more gin as well. Give <laughs> him more that gin. gin coming. So I the the last thing we were kind of wondering is what kind of music do we want to play, which is obviously
1: another minefield. (laughs) I know we want to play some Woody Guthrie. Definitely. I mean, the stories of him visiting Woody when he first, so his ostensible reason for going to New York in the first place, hitchhiking from, from Minnesota, was to visit Woody in the hospital in New Jersey. And true to his word, he visited him regularly, even though it took multiple buses and it was a complicated journey to make for this young man who didn't even really have a place to crash for the most part. And he would go with his guitar and play with his idol, which I think is just With Huntington's disease, he was in a mental hospital because it was considered it was a neurological disorder. And there wasn't really, at least initially, near Morristown, New Jersey. Later, he was transferred to Brooklyn. But for a lot of young men of 19, it may have been an alienating thing to visit somebody in that kind of um, situation. And Bob took it all in stride, apparently, and was really just like a a steady, his way of being a fan because this was his idol right but like his way of being a fan was just to be a friend which i think is but
0: that's what's so weird and doesn't completely gel for me
1: about him sort of
0: like rejecting people that are then that big of fans of him do you know no
1: what but but i think he didn't to oliver's point he, it wasn't like o-m-g what right. it was like yeah. it was like hey here's here's my tribute and then his first and original what I do song was, was a song right to woody yeah,
2: yeah. This land is your land And this land is my land From the California To the New York Island And the Redwood Forest To the Gulf Stream waters This land Was made for you and me Maybe we have... I've got some additions to the playlist, and I think with Woody Guthrie, we have it low as well, the backgrounds, like, so so much that he can hardly hear it, so we're just getting that mood going. But then, uh, speaking of all things French, I know Bob Dylan was a fan of Charles Aznavour, the French singer, and after he saw him in concert, he said, so after Bob Dylan saw Charles Aznavour, he said, uh, that guy blew my, I think he said, blew my effing brains out. Wow. Like he said something along those lines, like that guy really blew my mind. And then uh, there's, he, he makes, I really like the different phases of Bob Dylan. And in some of them, um, there's this period in the sort of 2000s, maybe, where he sort of went a, li- a little bit sort of introspective and loopy. And there's one bit where uh, he, he sings, uh, he sings that he's been thinking about Alicia Keys. Do you know no. what And he he goes like, I've been thinking about Alicia Keys. Wondering where on earth Alicia Keys could be, like that. And I always found that one to be really wild. But maybe, maybe if he's been thinking about Alicia Keys, (laughs) we could just have uh, some of her greatest hits playing as well.
0: That's a great idea.
1: Also, some other female singers who have who he sung with in the past, like Odetta, Emmylou Harris, like female singers who he admired and whose voices he loved. Joni, too.
0: Well, also, we've talked so much about Tangled Up in Blue, but isn't Tangled Up in Blue, you were saying, Emma, when we were discussing earlier today, isn't it supposed to be a reference supposedly to Joni
2: Mitchell's Blue
1: album? People say that, but then he also says that it's based on Chekhov. So like... <laughs> right. I, you, you know yeah. what
2: we know what we can have as a prop, speaking of Tangled Up in Blue, on the on the table, because in Tangled Up in Blue he says she's reading a book of poems written by an Italian poet from the 13th 16th, century. 13th century. <laughs> we just get some Italian poets out there on the
1: Petrarch. T- I'm pretty sure it's Petrarch because somebody asked him, and apparently he and people because people were like, it's Dante, and then they were like, Oh, because it's like the fourth it's like but apparently people have said that the fifth canto. Of the Inferno. Oh no, it's 14th century, sorry. And that the um, fifth canto of Inferno is like tangled up in blue in some way and whatever. Anyway, apparently somebody asked him who the poet was and he said, Plutarch. Is that his name? Plutarch.
2: There you go. We'll have one. Of his, Which I love. <laughs> we'll have one of those books in there and we'll drop, like I said, we'll drop lines. Like I might say, uh, oh, I was late because I was standing on the side of the road and the taxi didn't come or something like that. Yeah. We'll just get him in the road. road.
1: And I can wear a home. I'll wear a home. Okay.
2: Yes. Good, good.
0: So I was kind of thinking about the playlist and is there any young singer, songwriter or musician of any kind that we could add to the end of the playlist as a kind of 2023 vibe? And it actually got me back to thinking about, um, so New Yorker editor David Remnick, who's another self-professed Dylan mega fan, calling Dylan's early work, starting in his twenties, one of the great explosions of creativity in the twentieth century. Sometimes typing furiously, sometimes scrawling lyrics on envelopes and cocktail napkins. He seemed to be an antenna of the zeitgeist, an antenna of the zeitgeist, and I was wondering if like there's anyone we can think of who's an antenna of the zeitgeist in that way today. like is there a person that comes near modern day young Dylan Hood, or, or are we just never going to see that again?
2: Someone who can hold up the candle to, to Bob Dylan is once in you know 60, 60 years on, and we're talking about things that he wrote when he was 21 years ago, 21 years old, 60 years ago. I'm going to go see him in concert. This summer, like that, who do you, who can compare to that? Who can compare to that?
1: And he's not even showing up in Paris. I love that. Yeah,
2: and you know, have you guys seen him play live? He doesn't face the audience. He he he's like looks to the to the wings of the stage with a with his Oscar that he won in two thousand. He brings he, his. He, I, he won an Oscar. Wait, it's so what? weird. He won an Oscar <laughs> for um, There's a song "Things Have Changed," which is another one of my favorite songs. "Things Have Changed." And he, he he was in it. It was in a movie called Wonder Boys, I think. And he won the Oscar for it. And every show he plays, so seldom plays the guitar now. He's on the keyboard. And his Oscar, his Academy Award, is sitting. Wait, there.
1: that's and hilarious.
2: Look at it's weird. And like he doesn't. That's
1: such a strange. <laughs> of, is it like a talisman? Because I don't. I can't picture him being like, yes, the Academy is really summing it up yeah. for me in terms of. Yeah,
2: maybe maybe <laughs> now he has his uh, Nobel like, prizes up there instead. I have no idea, but. Uh, I know that he gets out there and he just looks to the wings. He doesn't, typically, he doesn't address the crowd, doesn't talk, gets on with it halfway through. Usually, it's about halfway through the song before you even know which song it is. Like, because he, he sings it in, and you can't blame him that he wants to sing Blowing in the Wind differently since you've been singing it since 1960, era, yeah. So, uh, you listen and then sure. you suddenly hear like, uh, <laughs> Blowing in the Wind. You're like, "Ah, oh, Blowing in the Wind, I heard it. <laughs> People are crazy and talks are strange. I'm locked in tight. I'm out of rage. I used to care, but things have changed. There's a, I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a quick story. And I used to live in Stockholm and I met this guy called Izzy Young, who any Dylanologists who are listening.
1: Oh my God, the Folklore Center. Okay.
2: You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. so I saw, um, I so I I interviewed him, I think, or I knew him. You
1: met Izzy yeah. Young. Izzy was no fan in the early days, right? Well, yeah, yeah.
2: So Izzy Young tells people that he made Dylan. You can't really say you discovered. You can't say you discovered because it was going to happen eventually anyway. But um, I I went and saw Bob Dylan in Stockholm playing with Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits, which is amazing. And then uh, afterwards, I bumped into Izzy Young again, and like we recognized each other and we had a chat. And I said, Oh, I went to see Bob Dylan the other night. He goes, Yeah, what did you think about it? And I go, It was great. What an opportunity to see Bob Dylan playing live. And he goes, You know what? He goes, F you. He said that. He said, I didn't want to say the word on your podcast. No. F you. to you. Yeah. And I go, What? He goes, F you. People are like you going and seeing him uh, and saying that it's good. It's the reason he doesn't care anymore. And now he doesn't look at the crowd and he doesn't talk. F you, buddy. And I was like, Whoa, okay. You got heckled by Izzy Young. That is
1: so cool. Okay, so context the Folklore Center in New York was a store, or it tried to be a store, but I don't think people really bought things. Certainly, Bob didn't buy things, he just hung out and browsed. But it was a store that Izzy Young ran in New York City, and it was one of the epicenters of the folk movement in America in the early 60s, certainly in New York City. And Bob Dylan, when he first arrived, 19, sleeping on people's couches, going to visit Woody on the bus. He would hang out at the Folklore Center and play and listen and just kind of make himself known. And Izzy Young refers to him as a hustler um, and says he wasn't that hot then. Even then, I think, was just not sure about this kid. Uh, And probably in hindsight, is like of all of the people who were around then, I can't believe it was that kid who, you know, (laughs) you sort of get the sense that that's his... His opinion on the matter.
2: It's a weird story, and then he moved to Stocking, but maybe he fell in love with some Swede or something, like so many of us do. And then he had some kind of, uh, and this is ten years ago now. I don't know, I don't know where the story went to after this. But he had some kind of folk music shop, and he, deep down, you could see that he wanted to tell everyone this origin story, as we all do with Bob Dylan, and putting Bob Dylan in front of the right person or whatever. But also, he wanted to sell. I think he wanted to sell his own records or poetry or whatever but everyone would go in and want to talk about Bob Dylan. So he was, you know, probably the curse of getting too close to Bob Dylan, which has been the case for some of these other people we've talked about who, you know, this bright flash of Bob Dylan light comes into their life and changes it forever. uh, While he just goes on doing his own thing, drinking gin and making trains in the south of France and playing concerts in in Carcassonne. And laying that
0: Oscar around. (laughs) Yeah. I love that about the Oscar. (laughs) That's amazing. Mm. Uh, guys, I feel like we're going to have to we're going to have to start preparing this dinner if we want to be ready for Bob's arrival, if he's on time, if he even shows up. Mm.
2: Time out of mind, whatever that means. Maybe that's going to come into play.
0: And Emma, thank you for wearing that hat. We'll link to it in the show notes.
1: We're all thanking each other because we know that Bob's <laughs> not going to thank us. We've got to get all this gratitude going now um so that we can play it real cool. When Bob shows
2: up. I had one last thing to say. Uh, That one more cup of coffee for the road was apparently, we say it was written in France, but it was when he went to a dinner party and asked for one more cup of coffee on the way out. And apparently in France at the time in mid-70s, that was a weird thing to do. And that prompted the song. So uh, offer him that coffee on the way out because he'd probably appreciate it.
1: Oh my gosh. Bob Dylan, here is one more cup of coffee for the road.
0: So now I'm going back again. I gotta get to her somehow. All the people I used to know, they're an illusion to me now.
1: Some are mathematicians. Some are Carpenter's wives. Don't know how it all got started. I don't know what they're doing with their lives. But
0: me, I'm still on the
1: road, heading for another joint. We always did feel the same. We just saw it from a different point of view. Tangled Tangled
0: up up in the blue. Thank you to our producers, Matt Bentley Viney and Joel Grove.
1: And thank you for listening. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and send us an email at fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye.